Welcome to the show, folks. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last time, Jesus made a 180-degree turn in his style of teaching and public communication. He's now teaching in parables. It's about two years into his ministry at this point, so the truth of the gospel is out there, and it has been understood. But only a select percentage have embraced that truth, so now Jesus begins teaching in parables to keep further revealed truth exclusive to his followers and disciples only, because everyone else at this point has rejected the truth. And rejecting the truth is not the same thing as not understanding the truth out of ignorance or deception. There's two factors involved when it comes to accepting truth, whatever that truth is, not just biblical truth, but any truth. And those two factors are the mind and the heart. If the mind doesn't have any information regarding the truth to process, then the heart isn't able to accept the truth because the mind doesn't have any information. Once that information is fed into the mind and in a way that will be understood and grasped and believed, then the heart will take that information and then accept it for what it is, unless, unless the heart has already decided what it wants the truth to be. Now, when that happens, the heart overrules the mind, and then all information that's fed into the mind is useless. Because now the heart has put up a filter around the mind, accepting only incoming information that is compatible with what the heart wants the truth to be. And Jesus knows that's what's going on at this point. So now he begins teaching in parables, because the filters around the public minds won't know what to do with these parables. How do you filter and block out information that's been encrypted into a parable, you know? But to his disciples and to his followers, they can be understood. But even to them, Jesus had to privately interpret some of the parables so they could get an idea of how he uses parables and from those examples how to interpret the rest of them. And last time we covered the very first parable he gave, the parable of the sower and the four soils. Jesus gave a parable about a sower who sowed seed to grow a crop. And the seed fell on four different types of soil. The first soil never really even got the seed because the birds came in and ate it up before it could take root. The second soil got the seed, but because the soil was stony, the seed sprouted almost instantly and had no depth. It wasn't rooted so that when the sun came out, it scorched it as fast as it sprouted. Seed that fell on the third type of soil actually took root and grew, but the soil had thorns and thistles that choked it out. And the fourth soil was good soil, so that the seed took root and grew into a huge crop that bore grain 30 times, some 60, some 100 times as much as was sown. Then Jesus explained later in private to his disciples how to interpret the parable. He told them that the seed was the word of God, so that the soil was a symbol for the heart. The birds that carried off the seed in soil type number one were symbolic for Satan, because as soon as the word lands on their hearts, Satan immediately takes the word from their hearts and flies away with it. These are the people whose hearts have closed their mind off from accepting the word. Then Jesus said the people of soil type number two, the stony soil, are the people who receive the word immediately and accept it with joy and excitement, but at the first sign of trouble in their lives, they immediately become offended at the word and wind up just like the people of soil type number one. The people of soil type number three wind up a little better because in their case, the seed actually takes root into the ground and grows. Only, instead of growing upward and outward, it grows sideways intermingling with the weeds, the thorns and the thistles, so that while it's still alive and well-rooted, it never grows up to produce a crop of any kind, never bears any fruit. And Jesus defined the thorns and the thistles as symbols for all of the many distractions of the age, the worries, the anxieties, and the empty pleasures that intrude and distract. All of these Jesus symbolized as thorns and thistles that work together to crowd in and choke out the word. 
And then finally, he brought up soil type number four, which is the good soil, the good heart that accepts the word, understands it, applies it, works with it, and then grows into a crop that bears grain that outweighs what was originally sown, 30 times as much, some 60, some 100 times. But the whole point of this first parable is the sowing of seed, which is the word. And after careful review of each type of soil that the seed lands upon, each type of heart that the word is sown, Jesus sums it all up with the fact that the crop itself is a crop that grows independently of the one who sows the seed. The sower throws the seed out there, not really knowing which kind of soil it lands on. And even the seed that lands on good soil, it grows and grows, and the sower doesn't know how it's happening. When Jesus said that's what the kingdom of God is like, it's like a man who scatters seed upon the ground and then continues sleeping and rising night and day while the seed sprouts. It grows and increases, and he knows not how. Now, this is the first of seven parables that Jesus is about to lay out here. And last time we talked about how the point behind each parable was continued unawaringly by Paul in letters he wrote to seven churches during his ministry. But then after that, Jesus expounded on those parables himself decades later through his own letters to seven churches, and those are recorded in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And what makes that really cool is the fact that those letters to seven churches are put in an order that seems to summarize prophetically the entire history of the church from the first century all the way up to the present day. So while each parable, each of Paul's letters and each of Jesus' letters has something profound and educational for us on a personal level, individually, they also have a prophetic level to them as well. And this first parable is all about the scattering of seed, right? About advancing the kingdom? Well, the Holy Spirit preserved for us Paul's letter to the Ephesian Christians, which was all about spreading the word. But then decades later, Jesus also wrote to the Ephesians, who were still all about advancing the kingdom. And according to Jesus' report, they were doing a great job. But they did have one problem that Jesus had to address, and that was the fact that they were so preoccupied with advancing the kingdom that they had no personal time for their relationship with their king. In Jesus' own words, he told them, you've lost your first love. So go ahead and scatter that seed, build up the kingdom, pollinate that crop, but not at the expense of your own roots. You yourself were once a little seed that became a plant that grew into a fruit-bearing crop. Don't become so determined to grow upward and outward that you accidentally uproot yourself right out of the word, you know? So that's the lesson in all of this for you and me. But on a prophetic level, all of this represents the apostolic age of the church, the very beginning of it all in the first century, everything prior to 100 A.D. And that's where we left off last time, folks. But apparently, right after this, they're among crowds again, because Jesus continues teaching in parables. And this is in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. It says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and then went his way. So when the plants sprouted and formed grain, the tares appeared also. So the servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How does it have tares in it? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and weed them out? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up the wheat with them also. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather together the tares first, and bind them in bundles to burn them. 
but then gather the wheat into my barn. And then right after this, Jesus launches right into two other short little parables. But in verses 36 to 43, his disciples asked him to explain this parable about the tares. And he explains it. So before we get into these other parables, let's peek ahead to Jesus' explanation of this one so we can decode these parables one at a time. This is in verses 36 to 43. Kind of makes you wish they had asked him about all the parables so he'd explain all of them. Because he probably would have, but that's okay. Verse 36. Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, even with this explanation, we better slow down here and take a close look at this. The kingdom of heaven is like a man which sowed good seed in his field. First off, what specifically is the kingdom of heaven? We've talked about this before. It's not heaven itself where the Father's throne is. It's the kingdom of heaven, the future rule of the Messiah, on the earth, the Son's throne. The last parable we got into, the parable of the sower and the soils, was about the kingdom of God, which includes both thrones, the Father's and the Son's. But here, Jesus is zeroing in specifically on the Messianic kingdom to be on the earth. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a man which sowed good seed in his field. He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man. For those of you who have forgotten, we've talked about this before, the Son of Man is one of the Old Testament's prophetic titles for the Messiah. Because when the Old Testament prophets were taken into the future to see the Messiah, they were stunned that he looked human. They said, I saw a Son of Man coming out of the clouds. I mean, they were stunned. So the Son of Man, meaning the Son of Man talked about in the Old Testament, that became one of the Old Testament titles for the prophetic Messiah. He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Jesus is the man which sowed good seed in his field. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. Now, folks, who are the children of the kingdom? Whenever we start talking about the Messianic kingdom, it's real easy to just assume that the children of the kingdom are the Jews and Jews only. But the children of the kingdom, whether you're talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the children of the kingdom is a title for Christians. The children of the kingdom are children who have been adopted into that royal family. Now when it starts talking about the future rule of Jesus over the planet earth, Israel is the focus because it's a Jewish kingdom. The king is a Jew. The throne will be the throne of David, so it's a Jewish throne. The capital of the world will be Israel, so it's a Jewish kingdom. But of that royal Jewish kingdom, the members of that royal family, Paul tells us that through Jesus Christ, we've been adopted into it. That's what Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 are all about. 
We've been adopted as sons and daughters into this royal family in which we're joint heirs with Christ, provided that we share in his suffering so that we'll share in his glory. And there's no longer a distinction between Jew or Gentile if you're in Christ. That's what Galatians chapter 3 is all about. In Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 28, Paul says that there is now no distinction between Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. That's in Galatians 3. Look it up. So don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, this isn't for the Christians. This is just for the Jews only. No, it's not. Now, on the other hand, don't go to the other extreme in which some believe that the church replaces Israel. No, it doesn't. That twisted theology is called replacement theology, and it has no biblical basis whatsoever. It's nothing but anti-Semitism in the disguise of Christianity. Don't fall for that. Christianity does not replace Israel. It's grafted in. It's adopted in through Christ, where of Abraham's offspring, by a spiritual rebirth and adoption. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a man which sowed good seed in his field. Jesus is the man which sowed good seed in his field. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. In the last parable we talked about, the sower and the four soils, the seed was the word, and the soil was the heart. But in this parable, this is about sowing children of the kingdom into the world. Big difference. But while men slept... His enemy, whose enemy? Jesus' enemy, Satan. While men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Your modern translations might say darnell weeds instead of tares. Other study Bibles will point out that the tares are what's called today zenzania. It's a seed that looks just like wheat, except it's black. And if you mix it with wheat, it's poisonous. You make bread with wheat where this other seed gets mixed in, it'll kill you. So this isn't just a nuisance. This is a serious, threatening problem. So Jesus is the sower who planted good seed, children of the kingdom, into the field, which is the world. But then Jesus' enemy, Satan, came while men slept and sowed tares among the wheat. And then he went his way. The tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. So when the plants sprouted and formed grain, the tares appeared also. The servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How is it that it has tares in it? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and weed them out? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up the wheat with them also. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather together the tares first, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But then gather the wheat into my barn. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. A couple of things here we need to look at, folks. First off, this is not talking about the Great Tribulation. Some groups try to say that this is talking about the Great Tribulation, which is preceded by the rapture. They say, see, Jesus is going to send his angels like reapers to gather out of his kingdom. Wait a minute. 
It says they shall gather all things that offend, and then which do iniquity, and cast them into a furnace of fire. That doesn't sound like the rapture to me. And on the opposite side of the aisle, people try to say that this is a parable that proves Christians won't be raptured out of here before the Great Tribulation starts, because Jesus said here he'll gather up the tares first and cast them into a furnace of fire, which they conclude is talking about the Great Tribulation. Folks, there's nothing in this parable that has anything to do with the Great Tribulation or the rapture. And besides, you can't say Christians go through the Great Tribulation because it goes against what Jesus said in the first part of this parable. When the man who sowed the good seed first discovered the tares in the field, he told his servants not to weed out the tares, lest they accidentally uproot the wheat along with it. Remember? The whole point of Jesus stalling is to not hurt the wheat. What's the point of stalling if you're going to do it anyway? It's because towards the end of the harvest, you can weed out the tares without hurting the wheat. Because at full maturity, the differences are visually apparent. This is about selecting and gathering the tares to burn them and being careful not to pick up weeds to burn it. Well, Josh, are you saying this parable is wrong because it says he'll gather up the tares first? How can that be true if the rapture happens first? Well, first off, there's children of the kingdom planted both before and after the rapture. There's 144,000 Jews who were sealed and protected from the persecution of the Antichrist. But don't go there. This has got nothing to do with the rapture or the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation isn't about God gathering anything, good or bad. He's pouring out his wrath upon the whole planet. There's nothing in this parable that has anything to do with the Great Tribulation or the rapture. Look at what it says. Jesus said the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of where? Where does it say that he's going to gather the tares out of? It says out of his kingdom. Not the world, but Jesus' kingdom. Where is Jesus' kingdom? It doesn't exist yet, but it's to be on the planet Earth, the world. Earlier in this parable, Jesus said the field was the symbol for the world, right? Jesus said he planted children of the kingdom into the field, which is the world. Was the world Jesus' kingdom when he started planting the children of the kingdom on it? No, because they crucified him, remember? Is the world Jesus' kingdom now? No. There's a Muslim mosque sitting in Jerusalem right now where the temple used to be. The kingdom itself doesn't exist on the world yet. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says the God of this world is presently Satan, the enemy, the one who sowed the tares. The kingdom isn't here yet. It isn't on the world yet. Only the children of the kingdom are here at this present point in time. That's why in the beginning of this parable, the world is symbolized by the field. But here, towards the end, when it's harvest time, Jesus is no longer calling the field the world. Because he said it was the end of the world. So now he's calling it his kingdom. Which means at this point in the parable, Satan has been overthrown. Which means this is after the Great Tribulation. Jesus said, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom. The kingdom has been established, which means this takes place after the Great Tribulation, after the Antichrist has been defeated, after Satan has been bound. Until all of that happens, the world is still Satan's kingdom. Remember what Jesus said earlier in another parable about the strong man? He said, first you must bind the strong man, then you can plunder his house. The strong man was Satan. 
His house was the world, and Jesus was the one stronger than the strong man. And here, Jesus labels this the end of the world. Not meaning the end of the planet, but the end of Satan's kingdom. And the beginning of Jesus' kingdom. So what this is talking about here is an event that takes place after Jesus has bound Satan and has already set up his kingdom. But even though the one who planted the tares is bound, the tares themselves are still in the field, which means they're in Jesus' kingdom now. They're in Jesus' kingdom, but it's the first day. So the first order of business, separate the tares from the wheat. Two levels of this parable, the planting of both wheat and tares, and the harvesting of both the wheat and tares. The planting part started when Jesus came to the earth, and it's been going on between both Jesus and his enemy for thousands of years. The tares are planted by the enemy to poison not the field, but to poison the wheat. So you bake bread with the seed of the tares in it, it'll kill you. But it's hard to root it out when it's seed because it looks just like wheat. Very convincing counterfeit, but it's poison. Make no mistake, these tares are not only children of Satan, like Jesus said, but they are convincing counterfeits of children of the kingdom, mixed in to poison it. That's reason enough, you'd think, to root them out, right? No, Jesus says can't do that. Might hurt some of the wheat in the process. Let it all grow together. But when it's harvest time, then we'll sort it out. What's Jesus calling the harvest? He said the harvest is the end of the world, the end of Satan's rule. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of what's now his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Notice that Jesus didn't say they'd be cast into outer darkness, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's what he said before. He said that before, and he'll say it many times again. But he doesn't say it here. Why not? means the same thing, doesn't it? Or does it? All of Jesus' words are chosen very carefully in these parables. When Jesus uses the phrase outer darkness in our King James, in the original Greek, a more proper arrangement of the words into English should have been the darkness that is outside not outer darkness, but the darkness that is outside. Outside of what? Not outside the kingdom, but outside of the light of Jesus' presence. And those who are being thrown outside the light of his presence are children of the kingdom who were disobedient here on the earth before Jesus came to set up his kingdom. They were saved, they were justified in the blood of Jesus Christ, but they weren't sanctified. A lot of people try to combine the doctrine of justification with the doctrine of sanctification, but those are two separate things with two separate blessings and two different threats of losing things if the person doesn't get it. Justification was taken care of at the cross. All sins are forgiven. Sanctification is about growing up and maturing and being obedient. Those who aren't justified by Jesus' blood on the cross can never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who were justified but are not sanctified can still enter the kingdom of heaven, but they miss out on rewards and several other blessings that are so wonderful that the missing out of those rewards brings about its own form of wailing and gnashing of teeth. And we'll get into all of that when we get to those verses. I don't mean to jump ahead of ourselves here. I just had to bring it up because a lot of people try to use those outer darkness passages to prove that Christians can lose their salvation if they don't behave because they assume that the outer darkness is synonymous with hell. No, it's not. 
And here's proof right here. Because when Jesus does talk about casting people into hell, he makes it obvious. He doesn't use the phrase cast into outer darkness. He says he's going to cast them into a furnace of fire. And the reason why he says furnace of fire instead of outer darkness is because these are not children of the kingdom. Jesus said these were children of the wicked one. They're not adopted sons and daughters of Christ who weren't sanctified. These are sons of Satan who weren't even justified. They were specifically planted here by Satan himself to pose as sons and daughters of Christ, to poison them. The children of the kingdom are adopted sons and daughters into the kingdom. They're saved. If they're saved, if they've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ for all of their sins, then they certainly won't be cast into a furnace of fire. They may lose rewards for being disobedient and be cast temporarily into outer darkness, but they certainly won't be cast into a furnace of fire. But the people in this parable are. Why? It's because they are not children of the kingdom. Jesus said they were children of the wicked one. They're not wheat that went bad. They're tares. They were never wheat to begin with. Now, folks, the letter that Paul wrote to a church that mystically pairs up with this parable is the letter that he wrote to the Philippians. In his words of assurance to the wheat who were there, he told them in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Be confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. In verse 15, though, he starts talking about the tares. He tells them that some teach of Christ not out of love, but out of envy and strife. They teach Christ of contention, not sincerely. And then in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he warns them and says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul's talking about those who tried to force religious ritualism down their throats, claiming that they weren't being truly circumcised, either literally or symbolically. Paul was telling them, look out for those guys, because we are the circumcision. We worship God in the Spirit and don't put any confidence in the flesh. In other words, we don't put any confidence in our external appearances. We're not physical performers. We're the real deal. We're not just Christian on the outside. We're Christian on the inside. We're not tares like they are. We're the wheat. And this is continued by Jesus himself in one of his letters to a church recorded in Revelation chapter 2, his letter to the church in Smyrna. He told them, I know your works in tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Wow. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil will cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Wow. Wheat and tares to the point of serious persecution, folks. There's been examples of this kind of thing all throughout history, of supposed religious superiority, which is actually demonic, overruling and persecuting religious inferiors who turn out to be, from Jesus' standpoint, the real deal. That's why they're being persecuted. It's because they're the real deal that they're being persecuted. But on a prophetic level, remember, each of Jesus' letters to seven churches also has a prophetic level. Since laid out in the order that they are, each one represents an era of church history, thus laying out all of church history from the very first century to the present day. So where does this fit in? It's the second letter, Second parable came right after the first one, the apostolic age of the first century. This parable and Jesus' letter to Smyrna represents the age of persecution during the second and third centuries. Now this next parable is reported by Matthew in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, and Mark in Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 32. 
Jesus said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use to illustrate and explain it? The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Of all the seeds it is the smallest, yet after it is sown it grows up and becomes the greatest of all garden herbs, and puts out large branches and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make shelter, and are able to make nests and dwell in its branches, and dwell in its shade. Now, Jesus doesn't interpret any more of these parables. We have to figure these out on our own. But let's remember how he interpreted the other to help us interpret this one. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, are used synonymously this time. He says it's like a grain of mustard seed which a man sowed in his field. Now, so far, this parable starts off just like the parable of the wheat and the tares. That was, quote-unquote, a man sowing seed in his field. And in that parable, the man sowing the seed was Jesus himself. The seed that was sown were children of the kingdom, Christians. And the field it was sown upon was the world. The only difference so far here is that instead of it being seed for wheat, it's a mustard seed. And later on, Jesus will use a mustard seed as a measure of faith that's necessary to move mountains. It's the smallest seed there is. So this parable decoded, Jesus himself sows the seed of Christians, children of the kingdom, into the field which is the world. The seed used is a mustard seed. So it was a small planting, but it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, to the point it became a tree. So this sounds awesome, right? That's pretty cool. This is great. This little mustard seed grew into a tremendous tree that's large enough to invite birds of the air to come in and build nests in it. But this turns out to be a double-edged sword. Mustard seeds aren't supposed to grow into trees. They grow into bushes, but not large trees, certainly not large enough to shelter birds. And in Jesus' first parable, what were the birds of the air symbolic of? Satan. So it's great that it grew, but before it's all over with, it's grown too big so that Satan has infiltrated it comfortably and well hidden. He's built nests in it. And Paul had to contend with a church like that. It was called the Corinthian church. He had to write them two letters. It was a huge mega church, very popular. When it was younger, it was popular with Christians, but by the time Paul had to deal with them, they'd become popular with the world. Too popular. And popular with reason. They had intermingled biblical doctrine with demonic doctrine that appealed to the culture. And you read Paul's letters to the Corinthians, they had become so petty. I mean, really petty that Paul had to specifically address all kinds of things that they were arguing about. And the root of it was all self-worship, trying to twist the scriptures to condone what they wanted to do with their lives instead of just following Christ. They wanted the scriptures to condone what they knew to be wrong. And even what they did right, they did for popularity, did it for the wrong reasons. But biblical doctrine had been watered down to keep things politically correct. They had stopped teaching about the resurrection and eventually got to the point where they didn't even believe in the resurrection. And eventually Paul had to deal with them on that. Some of them didn't believe in a resurrection. This is supposed to be a church, right? Where did all this come from? How did this get in there? Got too big. And after Paul's first letter to them, they shrugged it off and accused him of being crazy. Oh, well, it's just crazy, Paul. Nobody's going to listen to him. It's okay to combine Christianity with Baal worship. Huh? Paul's the one who's crazy. Are you nuts? Jesus also addressed this in his own letter to the church of Pergamos, recorded in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. He commended them for what they did right, but then he said, I have this against you. 
you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. So have you also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And folks, the Nicolaitans were a group that started hierarchies in the church, turning it into its own priesthood kind of thing, mixed with almost something that felt like the organization of a military. It got way too big. Birds of the air came and built nests. So the parable of the mustard seed is mystically linked to Paul's letters to the Corinthians and Jesus' letter to the church of Pergamos. And prophetically speaking, which church era does this cover? The imperial church of the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries. Then Matthew 13, verse 33 says, He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and covered over in three measures of meal till all of it was leavened. And leaven was a sour dough, folks, that the Old Testament used to symbolize sin. You've got regular meal, which is good, but you've got this other sour stuff that's like regular meal, but it's not. It's sour. And it didn't matter how much or how little leaven there was, even if it was just a little bit. If it was mixed in with the meal, it would mix in with the whole batch and ruin the whole thing. And what it did, besides ruin the flavor, it corrupted it by puffing up, kind of like pride does. All throughout the Bible, leaven is used negatively as a symbolic type for sin. So this parable here is a real head-scratcher. Leaven is a symbol for sin. What do you mean the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and covered over in three measures of meal till all of it was leavened? Well, just traveling down the road here from the field of the last parable, it kind of has the same flavor, but with a little more potency to it. Satan's going to infiltrate the church, and he won't stop infiltrating it until he's taken it completely over. Leaven, which a woman took and covered in three measures of meal till all of it was leavened. But who's the woman? Obviously symbolic for Satan here. Satan is obviously, but why a woman? It doesn't mean that much here until you get to Jesus' letter to the church of Thyatira, where he tells them, I know your works and your charity and your service and your faith and your patience and your works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you, because you suffer that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. Whoa! Whose children? Children literally? No, it's talking about her offspring, churches that are spawned from this adulterous woman who calls herself a prophetess. You thought the Corinthians were in bad shape. This is the Corinthian church on steroids, folks. The Corinthians were mixing the occult with biblical doctrine and were also introducing a militant hierarchy type nonsense that Jesus never condoned. Well, in this sense, it's gone even further. They turned it into a militant priesthood that's almost identical to the Old Testament ways, but with Christian labels. And Paul has to deal with that in his letter to the Galatians. And for anyone who isn't sure that salvation comes by faith and not by works, Galatians will settle that one for you. It's about a relationship with Christ who paid the bill. None of this bowing down to humans who call themselves reverend or father or mother or prophet or prophetess. None of that garbage. So the parable of the woman and the leaven is mystically linked to Paul's letter to the Galatians and Jesus' letter to the church of Thyatira. 
And prophetically speaking, which church era does this cover? Well, which one does it sound like, folks? Don't get mad at me. I can't help it that Jesus put these letters in this order, but this covers historically the age of papacy, starting towards the end of the 6th century and continues on to this very day. And it's interesting that Jesus acknowledges the fact that it will last until the very end, because in his letter he promises them that they will go through the tribulation if they don't snap out of this garbage. It's too big. It spans the entire globe. And the hierarchy thing, the reverend fathers, reverend mothers, holy bishops, archbishops, priests, all that stuff, God hates that. He had that before in the Old Testament. He died on the cross to get rid of all that. But it's not just that. It's about leavening the meal. During the Middle Ages, the papacy endorsed the worship of angels, which is clearly non-biblical. The honor and reverence that they give to Mary is okay. I don't have a problem with that. But praying to her, whether they know it or not, that's an act of worship. You should worship the Lord only. And they still call her the Holy Virgin Mary. Well, a few sessions back, we found out that at one point she thought Jesus was crazy. Do you want to revere somebody who at one time thought Jesus was crazy? She was trying with the help of Jesus' brothers to seize him by force. And she's not a virgin anymore because Jesus had brothers and sisters. You should worship the Lord only. And there were all kinds of weird supernatural cultic practices during the Dark Ages that the papacy endorsed and got started. Just here in the last couple of years, we've heard the Pope himself embrace evolution. He's embraced the religion of Islam, said it's okay to call God Allah. And now he's got the Vatican searching the heavens for aliens. I mean, where does it end? Now, don't think this problem, though, is exclusive to Catholics only. Remember, these parables are inclusive to the church as a whole. And so are Jesus' letters recorded in Revelation. Each one says, let he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So these parables and Jesus' letters and Paul's letters, they're for all of us. So this problem here is a problem that can happen anywhere to any Christian of any time and to any church. And by the way, it has. This is a problem that's more prevalent today in just about all church groups, not just the Catholics. But prophetically speaking, and that's all I meant, since these parables and letters lay out church history, prophetically speaking, this right here is right in the order that it's supposed to be. First, we had the apostolic era, sowing the seed, which was the word, onto all kinds of soil. That was the first century. But then we had Satan beginning to sow the seed of tares in the field. Satan began to infiltrate the church and persecute it. And that's the age of persecution, the persecuted church. That was the second and third century. Then we had the mustard seed, which grew way too big, so that Satan's ministers are now comfortably nested in the church itself, bringing with them doctrine that's idolatry, doctrine that's demonic, and promoting a church hierarchy that is not biblical. And with that, we get the imperial church age of the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries. It's not my fault that the age of the papacy was next in line. It started in the latter half of the 6th century and prevails to this day. And the next parable in line was the woman who mixed leaven in with three measures of meal. The woman Jesus called Jezebel in his church letter. And the problem with it is the same as the last letter, the last parable, only it's on steroids. But if you're Catholic and if you're still mad at me, don't worry. The Protestants and the denominational churches are in big trouble too. And Jesus is fixing to rip into them, so hold on tight. The parables given to the public concludes... And this is in Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, and Mark chapter 4, verses 33 to 34. It says, These things all taken together, Jesus said to the crowds in parables, 
With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear and understand, because without a parable, he said nothing to them. And he did not tell them anything without a parable. But privately, to his disciples, he explained everything. This was in fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things that have been hidden since the foundation of the world. Matthew's quoting Psalm 78, verse 2 there. Then in Matthew chapter 13, verse 36, it says, Then Jesus left the throngs and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares. And then he explained it to them from verse 37 to 43. We covered that already. But after explaining the parable of the tares, he says to them in verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay, let's fill in the blanks with the symbology that we've already been given. What's the field, folks? What was it in every other parable? The world. So the man in this parable is purchasing the world, right? Why is he purchasing the world? Because there's treasure hidden in it. A lot of commentaries try to sell the idea that the treasure in the field is Jesus Christ, and man is supposed to sell all that he has to get him. But if Jesus is the treasure, why is he hidden? And if the field is the world, why is he hidden in the world? See, that's backwards. If Jesus is hidden in the field, and we're the ones that are supposed to purchase him, what are we purchasing? The field. And what is the field a symbol of? The world. So we're supposed to give up everything we have to purchase the world? Just so that we can get Jesus? See, that's backwards. Jesus is the man who sold all that he had to purchase the field, which is the world, soon to be his kingdom. Because in the world was hidden something that to him is treasure. By purchasing the field, he's also purchasing the treasure. The Old and New Testament both speak of Jesus purchasing the title deed to the planet Earth. Why? Because in the beginning, God gave to us the title deed to us, the human race. But then we, in the Garden of Eden, gave the title deed to Satan. And the only way to get the title deed back is for Jesus to do two things. Satan holds the deed, but it's the Father who recognizes the deed holder. Jesus purchased the title deed from his Father at the cross. And with that, purchased us. Because we're the treasure that's hidden in the field. Now all that's left for him to do is to bind the strong man so that he can go in and plunder his house. What's he waiting for? He doesn't want to accidentally destroy any wheat in the field that he just purchased in an effort to weed out the tares. No, he said he's going to wait and do that at the harvest. Jesus is the one who purchased the field. What did he buy it with? Everything he had. And Paul expounds on this beautifully in his letter to the Romans. He said, all men are unrighteous. No one seeks out God. All have turned aside. No one does right, not even one. The wages of sin is death. Since all have sinned, all are justified through Christ Jesus. Jesus paid those wages on our behalf. Whenever you wonder if God loves you, read Romans chapter 8 and read it all the way through. If you're still down in the dumps after reading that, then you need to read it again. And the next church age of history, now alongside with the papacy, but starting much later in the 16th century, is the Reformation Age, when starting with Martin Luther and then others following him, got their hands on a Bible and didn't rely on the church to interpret it for them, but understood it themselves and realized that their sins were not forgiven by the church elders, as they were taught to believe, but by what Jesus did on the cross. And that payment was paid in full. 
The doctrine of grace, which is what Romans is all about, was what gave the Reformation age its fuel. It started in the 16th century and prevails to this day. And Jesus wrote a letter to a church in Sardis, which promises to the Christians of this church age that they will endure until the rapture. Now, as great as the Reformation age is, oddly enough, Jesus doesn't have anything good to say about them in his letter. But he did have a reprimand. And this is in Revelation 3, verse 1. He told them, I know your works, and that you have a reputation that you live, but you are dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Why is that, folks? The idea of the cross became cliché. He says to them, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. In other words, remember what it felt like when you first discovered what grace was all about. How do you get used to grace when you consider what it cost Jesus? That's why Mel Gibson wanted to make that Passion of the Christ movie so badly. Because we so glibly say, thank you for dying on the cross to pay for my sins. Amen. Let's watch TV now. Gibson made the passion for those people. Snap out of it. You're dead. Wake up. Then Jesus gave another parable, still in Matthew chapter 13. This is verse 45. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who is a dealer in search of fine and precious pearls, who on finding a single pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now this parable runs along the same theme as the last one, only instead of it being treasure in a field, it's a pearl of great price. In my mind, what this parable is all about is personifying the parable that was before. In other words, the other parable, Jesus was speaking of purchasing the church on a grand scale. When he died on the cross, it bought the whole field, the whole world, and bought the whole treasure that was hidden in the field. But here, still the same principle, but it's on an individual one-on-one basis. The dealer in search of fine pearls is Jesus. He's not looking for one pearl. He's looking for many. He's a dealer in search of pearls, plural. But when he finds one of great price, in other words, it's expensive, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus sold all that he had to purchase the whole treasure in the field, but he also sold all that he had to purchase you. If the whole world had remained righteous and never sinned, and you were the only person who ever sinned, he still would have come to the cross to purchase you. And you can take this even further by exploring how a pearl is formed. The oyster, after opening and closing its mouth from time to time, will accidentally get sand in his trap. It's an irritation. So it crushes and grinds the sand until it becomes a pearl. It doesn't start out a pearl. It's just a clunk of sand that sneaks in. But after a long time of crushing and grinding it, it becomes a pearl. That's how we're formed. This parable of the pearl of great price is personal. It's intimate. It's what it's all about. And you can link this parable to Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. They had an intimate, emotional love for the one who purchased them. And they were personally under the weight of a lot of crushing going on from persecution, adversity, but they were pearls of great price. And then Jesus wrote a letter to a church in Philadelphia and had nothing but good to say to them because in spite of their personal adversity, the emotional love that they had couldn't be quenched so that even in their adversity, they were spreading the gospel like none of the other churches. 
They were a missionary church in every sense of the term. And Jesus told them, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, and no man can shut it, for you have a little strength. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my patience. I also will keep you from the hour of temptation or tribulation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no man take your crown. The crown is the reward reserved for them for their love and faithfulness. He's saying, hold on to that reward. Hold fast. I'm almost there. I'm coming quickly. And prophetically speaking, obviously, this is the missionary church which didn't really get started until the 18th century, but prevails to this day and will continue up until the rapture. Now, don't think of the word missionary as just Christians traveling around the world or going to China to spread the word. It includes that. But the whole point here is that they're the pearl of great price. Not for the casting of seed and spreading the gospel, but for being who and what they are in the midst of their persecution, who continue to love him, continue to serve him, continue to be faithful and watchful up until the end, looking forward to his return, looking forward to the rapture, patiently and lovingly waiting for him as a bride waits for his groom to come get her. We got one more parable to go with one more church age. Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 53. Jesus said, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered fish of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to the shore and sat down and gathered the good fish into vessels, but cast the bad fish away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Well, this parable doesn't require any interpretation. It's just another version of the wheat and the tares, right? Both good and bad, just and unjust. But the reapers who were the angels in the wheat and the tares parable are the dragnets in this parable. Instead of wheat and tares, it's fish of every kind, good and bad. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, folks, just in case any of you do have problems or unanswered questions with this parable, just go back and listen to our discussion on the wheat and the tares parable because we spent a lot of time on that one. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said, Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man that is a householder, which brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed. And that concludes the seven kingdom parables, which means all I have left to share with you now is the final church letter that Jesus wrote that pairs up with his last parable. It's the letter that Jesus wrote to the church of Laodicea. First off, they have absolutely nothing good said about them, not one thing. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold or hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and increased with wealth and goods and have need of nothing. But you don't know 
that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel to you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich and white raiment, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness do not appear. And anoint your eyes with salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. That last part there is real famous, and it's used most of the time as some kind of altar call, but in contrast to every other letter that Jesus wrote, the end of each one says, He that has an ear, let him hear. But in this last letter, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's outside trying to get in, either into their hearts or into the walls of the church. But he says, If any man hear my voice, if any man can hear my voice, if any man can hear my voice, they probably won't because they're too preoccupied with worship services and listening to all the empty feel-good junk that doesn't mean anything. The church has a steeple that's 100 feet tall and the offering plates are made of solid gold. The organ has 2,000 pipes. The orchestra would make the London Symphony green with envy. And the congregation of 4,000 members are singing and praising with the pride that they know they're rich and have need of nothing. But Jesus is outside trying to get in. He's knocking on the door and says, If, if any one of you in there, just one, hears my voice outside here calling to get in. If one of you hears my voice and opens the door, then I'll come in. But he's doing everything he can to keep from throwing up because they're all lukewarm. All the Christian cliches are flying about. Amens are being thrown around. Hallelujah thrown over there. It makes him so sick that he wants to spew them out of his mouth because it's empty, meaningless garbage. No substance. No temperature. Not hot or cold. And Paul wrote a letter to the Colossians that pairs up with this, addressing those who are Christian in name only. The only thing about these people is that they claim to be Christians, and they attend churches. Other than that one thing, nothing there. And prophetically speaking, folks, this started around 1900 and will continue all the way up until the Great Tribulation. Christians in name only. No doctrine, no growth, no spiritual insight. No relationship with the Lord, no knowledge of His Word, no prayer life, no devotion, no study, nothing. It's a social club and nothing more. It's just a big party that takes place once a week and Jesus is not there. And this church age is what's known as the apostate church. It's the age that we are in right now. Interesting, there's no more church letters in Revelation, so I guess this means it's the last of the church ages. Let's review the prophetic side of all this real quick, and then we'll close this. The first century was the apostolic age, represented by Jesus' parable of the sower and the soils, sowing the seed, which is the word, into the soils of all kinds of hearts. And that age was addressed by Jesus in his letter to the church of Ephesus, and Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. The second and third centuries were the age of persecution, Represented by Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares, when Satan sowed seed of his own amongst the children of the kingdom. And that age was addressed by Jesus in his letter to the church in Smyrna, and Paul in his letter to the Philippians. 
The 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries were the age of the imperial church, represented by Jesus' parable of the mustard seed, where the church has grown so big that Satan now has nests in it. And that age was addressed by Jesus in his letter to the church in Pergamos, and Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. The 6th century to the tribulation covers the age of the papacy, represented by Jesus' parable of the woman hiding leaven in three measures of meal, where sin is hidden to corrupt the church. And that age was addressed by Jesus in his letter to the church in Thyatira, and Paul in his letter to the Galatians. The 16th century to the present day covers the age of the Reformation, represented by Jesus' parable of the hidden treasure where Jesus gave up all that he had to purchase it. And that age was addressed by Jesus in his letter to the church in Sardis, and Paul in his letter to the Romans. The 18th century to the rapture covers the age of the missionary church, the Philadelphia church of brotherly love, represented by Jesus' parable of the pearl of great price that Jesus sold all that he had to purchase, individually. And that age was addressed by Jesus in his letter to the church in Philadelphia, and Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians. The 20th century to the rapture covers the age of the apostate church, the Laodicean church, the dead, blind, and naked church, represented by Jesus' parable of the dragnet and addressed by Paul in his letter to the Colossians. And that does it. We've got through them all, folks. We'll continue from where we left off next week. Until then, we're out of here. Take care.